0: To the first episode of Regulation in Focus, our regular Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series of short, sharp insights into regulatory issues that matter to you. I'm Kim Everett, a professional support lawyer here in the financial services regulatory team in London, and in this series, I'll be joined by my colleagues across the globe, bringing you incisive views and commentary on regulatory issues and developments. In this episode, we'll be discussing information flows in cross-border regulatory investigations and I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Ninan, a partner here in London, Hannah Cassidy, a partner in our Hong Kong office, and Natalie Curtis, a partner in our Singapore office. We've recently published the fourth edition of our cross-border guide to financial services investigations, which gives an overview of how to approach multiple proceedings in different jurisdictions and aims to assist firms in navigating the different regimes across 15 key jurisdictions. Our guide covers a range of important topics, including the Regulatory's breadth of powers, mechanisms for obtaining and withholding information, consequences for failing to comply, and the management of competing confidentiality and reporting obligations. You can download a preview of our guide on our website. Chris, requirements to self-report regarding regulatory matters vary considerably across jurisdictions and the extent to which these requirements apply to notifications about the commencement of investigations by overseas regulators is mixed. When a financial institution operating in multiple jurisdictions is under investigation in one or more of those jurisdictions, what reporting obligations could arise?
1: So in an investigation that spans multiple jurisdictions, you've got to look at each relevant reporting regime and think about whether any of the reporting obligations are triggered and when. And then comes the much trickier task of working out how the different issues and regimes interact. Um, Each particular investigation is fact sensitive, and in terms of guidance, you've got the SFC circular, the ASIC guidance, and things like in the UK, FCA and PRA final notices, such as the 2010 notice that looked into reporting obligations uh, in respect of an SEC Wells notice. And in the UK more generally, the regulatory reporting regime in principle 11 for the FCA, fundamental rule seven for the PRA, and Senior Manager Conrad Rule 4 are extremely broad in scope. And the UK regulators expect to be notified about relevant overseas investigations and take strong action against firms that don't do this in a timely way. And in the past few years, we've seen a US investment bank fined in relation to reporting about a possible SEC investigation uh, and an Asian investment bank fined by the PRA in respect of a New York Department of Financial Services enforcement action.
2: Chipping in from the Hong Kong perspective, um, the regulators here definitely are really focusing on regulatory self-reporting. It's a real um, hot topic at the moment. And I wanted to just sort of draw out four main points. Um, the first is that the regulators are definitely moving towards that Principle 11 style of reporting that we have in the UK. And they expect to be told about anything, really. anything. Um, relating to an actual or a suspected material breach of of the rules, and actually that's incredibly broad. So when we're thinking about a breach of rules, that would include breaches of fitness and properness. And in the world that we're in at the moment, where there's a huge focus on culture and conduct, actually a lot of activity that happens outside of the regulated activity sphere even on the weekend could call into question somebody's fitness and properness. And in theory, all of that could trigger a self-report obligation. The other thing is regulators won't tolerate a firm investigating fully whatever's happened before notifying uh, the regulator. Firms must put in that initial report immediately, even if the facts aren't yet known. And that can be really tricky uh, for firms to navigate. The second point is that in Hong Kong, where we've got two uh, regulators, the expectation now is really to parallel report. So whilst the reporting requirements are slightly different between the Securities and Futures Commission on the one hand, and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority on the other, and you could in theory um, uh, decide that only one report is necessary, in practice, firms are generally reporting to both regulators out of an abundance of caution. And, and really the key point is you don't want the other regulator finding out about something that you've told the other regulator. That's, that's going to really irritate them. The SFC expects to be told about anything that has a Hong Kong nexus. And again, in practice, that can be really very broad. So take, for example, uh, a regulatory investigation that's happening in the UK. The regulators are really focused on a particular product. At the moment, that's that's very much UK focused. But if that product is also sold in Hong Kong, then in theory, the regulators in Hong Kong would expect to be told about it. Because whilst you haven't actually identified an issue, in theory, you should be doing a bit of a root cause analysis to see whether what's happened in the UK could also happen uh, in Hong Kong. The third point um, that, that firms are really grappling with at the moment is Uh, In Hong Kong, the regulators have introduced more detailed and more prescripted notification forms. So to to give you a flavour of what the the regulators are now asking for, the the forms include questions like number of client complaints, um, the estimated amount of financial loss, um, when the incident um, happened, um, have you told other regulators? So before, when you could slightly, you know, you could put in a relatively high-level report to the regulator, now it's getting increasingly more difficult. They're expecting a lot of data to be provided, and so I, I suppose that highlights the fourth point, the fourth and final point, that really um, the regulators are also focusing on when a firm first knew about a a, a potential incident, and not only will they they'll be scrutinising the underlying misconduct. But they'll also be thinking about whether the firm has complied with their, their reporting obligations.
1: That, that's really interesting, Hannah. I've, I've got two reflections on, on that from a UK perspective. The first is in, in terms of the reporting form, the FCA has, has had a long standing um, notification form, which you can find at the back of the SUP um, 15 part of the handbook. But what we find in practice is that it is better for firms, particularly firms with supervisors to have a more informal form of notification. And that's either through a telephone call that's followed by an email or some sort of document setting out the reporting notification, or where a a firm um, is supervised by the contact centre, an email to the contact centre setting out the details of the notification. And the advantage of that is that you don't have to follow the prescriptive rules of the form, and the FCA still counts it as a principle 11 notification. Um, The second point about timing is really important as well. Um, and, and where we've seen it go wrong in the UK is where firms have late reporting to the FCA, and that could be all the PRA, and that could be a matter of weeks. Um, but, the, but the regulators go very hard against those firms and find what, what seems like quite a large amount of money for what is a very short delay um, for the firm in reporting the breach to the regulators.
0: So, Natalie. We've talked a lot about notifications to the regulators and how complicated that will be, but what should firms be thinking about in terms of their wider communication strategies?
3: In this situation, it's very important that there's a globally coordinated approach in managing communications with regulators and also with other external parties such as clients and media. Um, this is to ensure the accuracy of what is being said, but also to avoid inconsistencies. And as Hannah mentioned earlier, regulators like nothing less than to find out about issues um, from third parties or other regulators. So, firms really need to consider who within their organisation should make the notification, and that person should be reasonably senior, have sufficient knowledge of the matter, and be properly briefed beforehand. It's essential that the notification is accurate and consistent with the overall communications approach and we always suggest that legal advice should be sought to limit any potential exposure. It also may be beneficial to set up a point of contact for media inquiries and to agree a plan with the corporate communications department beforehand so you're prepared for any um, follow-up inquiries.
0: Hannah, a perennial challenge for firms is how to coordinate their responses to simultaneous investigations in multiple jurisdictions, competing regulatory obligations to, on the one hand, keep an investigation confidential, and on the other, as we've discussed, report an investigation to another regulator, may place firms in situations which are extremely difficult to navigate. So how do firms go about doing this? So, um, I mean, the, the, the broad point is just, just thinking about who
2: within the organization, and this is a, a real challenge for those global organizations, but who actually needs to, to be aware of whatever's gone on in order for them to decide whether a report um, is required in the first place. And I'm sure this is something that, that will Chris will pick up, um, particularly in, in the UK context. In, in Hong Kong, we have um, an additional layer of complexity because we have um, very stringent secrecy provisions. So these are provisions found in um, the SFO, which basically prevents firms from telling anybody, including other regulators, about an SFC investigation. Now they're very stringent, but also if you breach those secrecy provisions, then that potentially attracts criminal liability it's important to note that it's the individual who discloses the information to the other regulator who would be potentially criminally liable, not the institution. So if you've got your boss saying, can you just email the FCA with details of this SFC investigation, you need to be thinking about your own personal uh, potential liability, not the firm's. So um, there are mechanisms by which you can share information relating to SFC investigations um, to other individuals and to other parties. And and one of the mechanisms is by seeking consent uh, from the SFC. Um, And so we would definitely recommend that you do that. Um, The alternative would be for a firm to not say anything. Um, That's potentially very dangerous where, for example, You've got an overseas regulator asking um, whether you've had interactions with the SFC, whether the SFC are investigating. If you don't take proactive steps to try and seek that waiver from the SFC, you could open yourself up to criticism um, later down the line. Now, firms, um, we're continually um, assisting firms with dealing with the Section 378 provisions. And I just thought I'd mention um, one recent development in Hong Kong where those secrecy provisions have been brought into sharp focus. Um, Last week, the SFC issued a circular requiring all firms who exclusively use electronic data service providers, so private or public uh, cloud providers, to obtain an undertaking from those providers in which the firm must consent to the cloud provider um, to hand over to the SFC any or all of their data And importantly, they must agree to that cloud provider um, to hand that over without telling the firm. And and that's a classic case of Section 378 in action. So we're going to start to see situations where the regulator may go to the cloud providers uh, rather than the firm to access uh, data which is relevant to to their investigations. And the firms may not even know that the request has been made or indeed the data has been handed over.
0: So Hannah, how would the SFC handle the request for consent to disclose an investigation to another regulator?
2: So what we're seeing in practice is that the SFC's approach isn't always entirely consistent um, or forthcoming. Um, We're also seeing them becoming increasingly strict. So if they do consent to disclosure, then you have to provide a very detailed list of who's going to be disclosing the information and also to whom. And it's not enough, necessarily, just to name the entity in the UK. You have to list out all of the individuals who will be receiving that information. Um, also, those waiver requests are not necessarily handled in a, in a consistent um, fashion. So it, it depends, really, on, on the relationship that you have with the with the relevant case officer. But it, it goes back to my, my point earlier on that that's not to say that you shouldn't be approaching the SFC to, to seek that waiver. Um, you need to handle those requests really carefully to avoid breaching any secrecy provisions. Um, At the same time, you want to navigate and and manage the relationship that you have both with the regulator in Hong Kong, but also the regulators um, in the other jurisdictions.
1: So that's really interesting. I think the situation in the UK is just simpler. So in a UK regulatory investigation, the regulators will tell the subject of the investigation to keep the investigation confidential. But in general terms, it won't stand in the way of a firm having to tell an overseas regulator and where it's required to do so. And the usual process would be for a firm um, to go to the FCA and say, we have a reporting obligation in, say, Hong Kong, uh, and we'd like to report the fact of the investigation to our regulator there. Um, the FCA or PRA's response in those circumstances would usually be to say, you have to do what you have to do, we don't offer an opinion, Um, positive
3: or negative in relation to that. Chris, the uh, position in in Singapore is is similar in that um, there's no um, sort of restriction on on sharing information with other regulators uh, in relation to an investigation other than if MAS has issued an investigation report. So that report will be confidential. So in practice, if there is a need to disclose that to another regulator... Um, we'd usually advise our clients to ask um, MAS for consent for that onward disclosure um, of, of the
1: report. That, that's interesting. Look, it seems like there's a sliding scale where Hong Kong is the strictest, Singapore, there are circumstances where you ask for consent, and in the UK, it's, it's really a heads-up to the regulator rather than anything else.
2: Yeah, and it goes back to the point that e- even where perhaps, you know, legal, completely understand what the different obligations are, just practically making sure that those information flows are happening within the, within the global organisation is, is, is quite tricky um, to enforce in, in practice.
0: Well, we've only just scraped the surface of these issues, and it's already abundantly clear that firms face complex and difficult decisions when responding to cross-border financial services investigations. We'd encourage you to visit our website and request a copy of our guide or to get in touch with Chris, Hannah or Natalie or any of our regulatory experts to discuss any of these issues further. Thanks to Chris, Hannah and Natalie for joining me today. We'll be back with another episode of Regulation in Focus next month. Thanks for listening and bye for now.